You're listening to the David Bumble Networking Podcast. Very good day interviewing a lot of Cisco engineers. We discuss all things networking, CCNA, CCNP, CCIE, Python, automation, the books, the exams, the future, your career. Another long day at Cisco Live. We talk to the authors, the experts, the leaders, and people like you and me. David Bumble coming to you from Oxford in the United Kingdom. Now, here's your host, David Bumble. Hey everyone, it's David Bumble coming to you from Cisco Live. Really excited to introduce Eric to you. And I'm not going to do a full introduction. Eric, you can do that yourself. So tell us a bit about yourself. Sure, thanks. Uh, so I currently lead the, develop, uh, the DevNet team focused on infrastructure developer advocacy for Cisco. And what that means is uh, my team is responsible for uh, producing lots of content, lots of learning content, attending events, helping uh, the community understand how to interact with our APIs, how to best leverage them, things that they can do with them. Uh, my background prior to that is, uh, before joining this role a few months ago, I was uh, in various organizations inside of Cisco, uh, customer facing, and I spent two and a half years being a technical solutions architect for Net DevOps, which meant I went out to customer workshops, I did two and three day workshops, where I would go out and we'd, we'd learn some content, we'd brainstorm uh, you know, what their pain points were, what could we possibly solve with programmability and help them find a way to accomplish that and hopefully by the end of the workshop, a lot of times they would actually be able to produce something that would solve some little bit of that. So, so Eric, when we were like preparing for this like talk, I think one of, the, one of the greatest things is when you said that you've got a lot of experience as a, as a CCIE, many, many years, but you've been doing automation for a very long time. And I wanted to like sort of give the name to this talk as a re reality check. And I'll use the example of OpenFlow because there was a lot of hype <laughs> about OpenFlow. A lot of people were sold on OpenFlow, including me. I thought, this is, looks great. But it never, it wasn't really practical for the real world. That's what a lot of people have said. And you know, it, it's kind of died a death, it seems. So it, I, I get this, I, the same question for you now is like, isn't network programmability, network automation, all this stuff, just like that it's like a university project it's not real world so you were kind of telling me something different so is that true or not yeah so it's a question i get a surprising amount uh especially in my old role when i would go out and talk to people if uh in theory a lot of the conversations do come off that way so if a lot of demos a lot of a lot of people go out there and talk about very pie in the sky things and i think there's a lot of value in those kind of conversations in that it can show the end-all, be-all capabilities of a platform, but really to me what's more impactful is when I can do, like I mentioned, if I do one of those workshops with a customer and you can actually sit down and find real problems and then come at it from a programmatic perspective rather than the other way around of saying, I want to find something I can program, let's see if we can find a challenge to solve. Yeah. Uh, so it really, I try and do most of my conversations uh, driven by the actual real pain points that they're having. And it, it really can, it can make a huge difference to people to figure out, okay, this would make sense for this scenario. It won't really make sense there. It's cool that I could do it, but I, it's less important to me. And, and to your point earlier, so yeah, I have been doing this a long time and that's kind of what's driven that motivation for me is uh, I've been in the field for over 20 years, CCIE just over 15, and 
as far back in my career as I can think, 20 years ago, I was I was writing code in a much different way than it was writing Excel macros to do mail merges between a couple of different disparate mail systems so that I could actually have two different departments talk together. Uh, but throughout my career, every job I've had, I've always found ways to automate tasks that were either problematic for me, took a lot of time, uh, or I didn't trust that I would get them 100% accurate and I needed that level of accuracy. So there were a number of drivers that I would I would sit down and I'd look at it and say, this is important enough to take the time, figure out a way to do it better, rather than point click, point click, or find, replace, and notepad like we all do for, for our network configs and have for two decades. Yeah. Um, it, it's only been recently that I've had the capability of doing that in a lot more of the networking side of things. Uh, it was a lot of find, replace. Yeah. but. Like I said, through each of the roles, you know, uh, I've done pen testing, I've done database administrator, I've done a lot of different roles, Unix administrator, and I've always had some component where I sat down and I took the time to build tools. And I did uh, a lot of post-sales consulting uh, where I was doing implementations at very large scales. And same thing, I would, I would sit down and I'd spend all the time up front to say, I know how many sites I'm going to do. I need to know how many APs per site or how many you know firewall rules I'm going to need to do. I'll start. I'll write scripting and automation that I can ingest all the relevant data and come up with one big plan ahead of time and something I can test against as I go through. So one big wireless project I did, or uh, probably what 15 years ago now or so, uh, we were going to be doing almost 5,000 access points. So. We started out in advance where we could actually build spreadsheets out, use barcode scanners so that we weren't relying on people typing things, uh, print out automatic labels for each one once we provision them in the system and allocate them. Uh, they could be automatically placed, they could be uh, configured with their appropriate name based on that spreadsheet, but it all tied back to this one master database. So when someone went to go install it, all they had to do was look at the spreadsheet, look at the MAC address, know where to install it, and if there was a problem, we knew how to track it back to exactly which one went where. Uh, and it all came together cleanly, so we had team five, six, seven install teams around the campus, and they all could work together because they just grabbed a chunk of the spreadsheet, grabbed a pile of APs, and it worked. So basically, you, I think the takeaway there, there's two takeaways. Number one, you've been doing so-called network automation or programmability, whatever the hype word is of today, for a long time. And secondly, you're telling me that it's actually real world, it's not just pie in the sky stuff is that right absolutely and and I you know I can give I got lots of examples I've been doing as you said a long time but um, there there will be lots of conversations and lots of theory and uh, those don't always go to a, a good place um, but like I said if you start if you can start the conversation around you know, one of a few questions that I usually ask people to get this conversation started, and, and it works great when there's a whiteboard. Usually I'll do this and uh, take an hour out with a customer and just whiteboard it all out. You know, uh, a few questions. One, what do you spend a lot of time on in your day? What's a repetitive task that you do a lot of? It may not seem off the top of your head like something that is conducive to programming, but get it on the whiteboard. Start thinking about it, right? Uh, next one is what kind of issues do you have on the network? What causes outages? Um, and try and then do some whys backwards from there to figure out, it's almost always human error, or human ta human function that does it. It's very seldom devices tipping themselves over, so you can usually tie it back to actions, and those actions then are those things that could be automated so that you can do checks. And then 
even when things can't be predicted. The one other scenario I know you and I talked a little bit about yeah. is uh, this example that, that always comes up as a need from my customers, which is uh, when we're going to do a change, how do we know if that change was successful? And today that's ping. We ping across a bunch of devices. We may show a route table on, a, on the directly impacted devices. But what if with automation you could take many more data points? What if you took 100 or 1,000 data points? If you grab configs from every device beforehand, you grab routing tables, ARP tables, all of that, store them in some sort of a file structure, and then immediately after the change, you could actually go back and evaluate what has changed, and you'll see, maybe the routing table should have changed, but if it shouldn't have, and you see changes on several devices, you know you might need to revisit it, because you might have intermittent issues in places that you didn't even think to look. Um, and those are actually demos today that I've, I saw one of my peers doing, and I was pretty excited because I've talked about this in theory a long time, and there are actually people out there doing it now, which is, I think, stupendous uh, to be able to say, we're going to measure um, all of these different parameters, and you can define what's important to your environment, but then to actually sit down and, and code it and make it work and, and be able to prove that you know if, if you on the back end inject a, a failure, a, a change that isn't expected, you can actually demonstrate that it'll, in fact, warn you that something didn't go to plan. That's great. So, I mean, that's great. So, the, the example that you've given there that we spoke about earlier was uh, troubleshooting, yeah? Mm -hmm. So, like, take, use automation to get the original con configs from devices as an example. And I think what you told me earlier that's really cool is, you know, a human will perhaps do a show IP route or like you said, ping, but with automation you can pull back a lot of stuff and then you do your change and then you use automation to check that, that it's actually been implemented right. So, I mean, do you, can you remind us, you know, or remind me because you've told me already, but not necessarily the audience is, you, you mentioned four things. So, like, the four places where you think network automation is most real because, I mean, you've told us it's real, but where could someone go and apply it tomorrow? Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of them. And, and this is not just my you know, musings about what I think is cool or, or useful. I, I've done dozens of workshops with customers doing the whiteboarding out that I described. And I think without a single exception, all four of these have come up in some way, shape, or form in those conversations. So the first one's the one I just told you. And that's kind of one of the more advanced ones of measuring lots of different attributes before a change. The more you can think of, the better. And again, there's tooling out there, things like PyATS that is designed to just go and gather all of this information uh, about the network and store it however you like, you know, whatever, uh, if you want to store it in a database, if you just want to store it in memory, that's all up to you. But then to be able to come back and evaluate it afterwards is really important to customers because a lot of times there's outages and we get this perception in IT, if anything goes wrong, like they, they, they talk about that the whole outage was a failure. So if you can actually predictively during your window say, okay, uh, I've done my change, I found a few issues, before we say all is good and then discover that three hours later that some device is down, I'm going to go and find all of those one-offs, all those exceptions that I didn't expect. Uh, that can really actually help the perception of IT with the end users. Um, so that's one that's always been big in those conversations. Uh, the next one is a good one to actually kind of start out, I think, and it's, it's a real good beginner use case, which is, when I get called, I get paged on call, I VPN in, I find my secure ID token and I got to fire up my laptop. It might need some updates before I can uh, log in. Uh, it might be a half an hour, hour, whatever that is. In that amount of time, quite frequently, the issue might have gone away. Yeah. Um, or at the very least, 
they've been down this whole time. And only after that, you know, half hour, hour, whatever, now can you start SSHing one by one to devices to try and pinpoint where the failure is or was, what might be going on, looking at interface counters. This is a is the kind of thing where if if you if you could set up an automation where when a case is opened, uh, maybe to start with, all it does is it can go out and check a few devices and gather show tech, show interface status, stuff like that. Maybe check back in five minutes and ten minutes too to watch for incoming encounters that might be relevant, uh, and then to upload that to your service now, whatever kind of case you have. Um, then by the time the technician VPNs in, they already have some sort of state information. But then you can actually expand that out to a pretty substantial level as you start bolting on little bits here and there. So maybe you add on a capability where it will trace across the network between the user that reported the issue and the device they're trying to get to, do a path trace and actually go and check every hop in between, maybe every interface that that package should be passing through, and get things like error counters or bandwidth utilization or anything else that might be important. Bundle those all up, attach them to the case, Maybe use a graphic library to render the topology so you can see what devices are in play. If it's a SEV1, you could actually look at who supports each of those devices if you have multiple teams involved, add them all into a, a chat space, whatever platform you use. You could actually use it to start up like a WebEx and have it call out to everyone uh, and get them all on the call to start troubleshooting or they walk into a war room together and it can book a room for you with your room booking system. I mean, all, all of these are capabilities you could start bolting on as you got more comfortable with programming and everything I'm describing is pretty much non-invasive, which is why I think it's a great starter yeah. function because I, I always caution people, be very careful when you first start out automating. The more, with great power comes great with responsibility. Yeah. And I don't know someone who has gone down this automation journey without causing at least one major issue that they didn't anticipate with config changes. So it's, it's something you gotta tread very lightly on initially. But things like using CI/CD for testing and doing a lot of this non-invasive stuff as you're getting your feet wet, is a really good way to just simplify your day-to-day -day task uh, in a safe manner. So, uh, like, we, like I said, that was kind of use case number two that comes up all the time, is how can I speed up troubleshooting, help gather all this information, uh, I've even had people talk about take that same bundle and attach it to a TAC case. Maybe even have the API call, uh, you know, a web script call out and set up a TAC case and attach it because you know they're going to ask for that show tech output on the device. Yeah. So you can really kind of take this all kinds of directions depending on what's good for your environment. You could spin up new VPNs if, if there's a failure impact, you know, whatever it may be. Um, so I really like that one as, as a good starting point. Another one would be like a gold config or, or what is your baseline standard that you want to see on all your devices. Uh, and it's really good, especially if you have any kind of compliance concerns. So uh, maybe you describe a dozen or two dozen or three dozen attributes that should always exist. You should always have NTP. You should never have a local user other than maybe one static user that you have set. Uh, you should never have GRE tunnels going to weird foreign IPs. There's all these different things that you can evaluate against. And uh, you could use a tool, I mean, there's tons of tools out there. You could start with something as simple as Ansible where you could just describe what you want and just run it in check mode where it'll go out and check all your devices and tell you what it should change if it were in enforce mode. So it's a great way to very easily and quickly get off the ground and uh, evaluate things against a baseline. And then you, if you run that and 
log the output, you could actually have it for an auditor. So if you get audited a year from now and they say, back last February, were you in a secure state? You can show them your log saying, we had no foreign users uh, or unexpected users. We had this, we did all of these, all of our ports were shut down that weren't in use. Whatever your compliance requires, you can actually show them an audit trail that you've been validating it without someone having to go and touch every device. And I frequently in my career have been that person that had to go touch every device. So I can very much appreciate the value of having a machine do it for me on that interval. So, so Eric, that's great. So I think we spoke about four and you've told me about three. So was there another one that, that you had? Yeah, so I kind of merged accidentally two of them. So one of them was typically the uh, help me figure out how to go out and gather information quickly. If I need to go out and troubleshoot an issue, I want to be able to go gather information from a bunch of devices look and look at it locally. And then the fourth is kind of an expansion of that, which is if the ticketing system detects an issue or if someone reports a ticket, actually going out and starting to initiate some of that discovery for you and escalating that through, whether it's putting it in a message room or starting a, a WebEx or something along that lines, that you can actually gather people together around that bundled information that was auto-generated. So it's kind of two different things there, uh, but they end up, in the end, the nice thing is a lot of this automation, you end up building into one cohesive system. So you might start with a bunch of individual tasks. One may go out and just grab tech, show techs and run on an interval, but that becomes part of a broader system. You don't write it twice, you just call into that and say, uh, before a change, I want to call that, or if there's an outage, I want to call that. So you can actually leverage those individual components and build a much bigger end-to-end uh, -end system in the end. Sorry. That's great. I mean, you've, you've described a whole bunch of what seems to be really complex stuff. So if I'm a new person to network automation, I'm a, a typical network guy, where would you recommend I start and like of those four, or like even breaking it down, what would you recommend I do first? Because like you're doing really cool stuff. You're talking about like integrating with WebEx. That seems like really complex. So baby steps, where would I start? You know, what, what would you recommend? Sure. So, two different answers to that. From how, what type of things should you in, uh, attempt first? Uh, I would say, as I already kind of hinted at, start with the non-invasive stuff. So, find use cases where you can do things that you check on, things that you report on, things that you want to log or download from your devices. That ends up being a really, really good way to get your feet wet with whatever platform you choose to use for your automation because you can do so, you can experiment. Even better yet, if you have a lab, you can try it in there and you can really start pounding on things. Or uh, if you don't, there's always things like always on sandboxes. There's other options you can go out to uh, where you can use other people's gear to pound on or virtualized platforms. You can spin up a VM just to test out what you're doing. So always try it out in a safe place. Uh, it's very easy to kind of get ahead of your skis on some of this stuff when you're just getting started out. Um, but as for like a platform, um, this is a fairly, it, it can be a fairly contentious uh, question. Um, uh, from my perspective, I, I kind of take it from, I'm a, I like cars, so I kind of take it from the car perspective. There are a lot of really powerful tools out there, just like there's a lot of really powerful cars. So if I decide I want to go and be an F1 driver, uh, I'm not going to just hop in an F1 car uh, when I'm 16 and start being an F1 driver. But at the same time, uh, you're not going to have Lewis Hamilton hop in you know, a Ford Fiesta. So it's important to kind of know where you're at and use the best tool that you're capable of. Uh, you know, if I race him and I'm driving a Ford Fiesta and he's in an F1 car, I'm not going to win, but I'm actually going to do better than if I tried to drive an F1 car because I wouldn't get it off the line. Exact same thing with, uh, with tooling, I would say, for networking. If you start out with 
something like Python, it's a very powerful tool, but a lot of people that have never touched any programming struggle to kind of get off the ground. It, it can be a bit intimidating, not necessarily even difficult, but it's intimidating because it's uh, looking at the structure and trying to understand the basics of programming can be complex. Uh, for that reason, a lot of my workshops that I do, I ended up using something like an Ansible if they had no programming background. And the reason I like something like an Ansible, and there are a lot of other tools, Puppet Chef, Salt, uh, but Ansible from the networking side is really helpful because they have a lot of pre-built modules that are included when you install it. And it ends up being very human readable. So if I want to show someone a, a playbook that can go out and set up a new user on their switches, uh, it would be very trivial for them to look at what I've done, add one more line, and add another user that's got the same kind of settings on it. If they did that in Python, yeah, you could probably do the same, but as you, if I also then wanted them to add an NTP server, it would again look fairly intuitive what they're looking at, but in Python it might be a very different way of looking at it if you were going to do it in uh, a Yang data model and you needed to go find the right data models that were available for those various functions. At the same time, most of my customers that I work with that have now progressed and have been doing this for a long time, I find a lot of them tend to back off of Ansible as their primary. Um, and the reason for that is Ansible is set up to be able to do uh, things in a certain way. And as you get into like that kind of pie in the sky I talked about, about being able to call into WebEx and all that stuff, there may not be modules for a lot of those functions. So you can build any module you want in Ansible, but you're confining yourself to their rules then, whereas Python is a lot more flexible. You can do anything you want in Python uh, without necessarily having to comply with all these structured rules on how to build a module. So I see a lot of customers that when they get really advanced, if they want to build their own, if they don't want to just kind of use more off the shelf something like, Py uh, like Ansible and they want very custom scenarios that might might benefit their business, might do very unique things to their environment, then a lot of times they'll do something like Python and maybe leverage Ansible. So I had one customer in particular that did a very complex automation. They had multiple databases checking in with ServiceNow for approvals, all this stuff. In the end, they actually wrote a, out a dynamic playbook and called Ansible to actually do the task. But all of the other work was done. They had a custom front end in Python and they did, like I said, multiple database manipulations to check you know, approvals and denials of various access lists so that they could be auto-approved. Very complex logic that if they had done that in Ansible, it would have been probably more work than it was for them in Python. But they didn't have to go out and write uh, a script in Python that would SSH and figure out what commands to type or anything. Ansible already had modules that did exactly what they wanted. So they could leverage it as a tool in their tool belt or their overall tool chain. So I find that uh, I try to warn people, like when you start down the road with Ansible, it is an, a great tool. I do a ton of workshops on it. I'm a big fan. But it has constraints just like that Ford Fiesta does. In the end, you're not going to win the F1 race with it necessarily. I mean, and that's where the analogy breaks down a little bit because, yes, every, everything could be done with Ansible if you need to, uh, but it could end up being a lot more work. Uh, so just make sure you're looking at kind of what your overall vision is. Are you the type that wants to just buy something off the shelf and have it work? Then Ansible is probably a great selection. Or again, when I say Ansible, Puppet Chef, Salt, lots of other uh, providers out there as well that have similar tools. Um, but if you want to be able to really customize it to meet all of your very unique needs and in businesses that are very technical, maybe you have a lot of developers, that's where you start getting into things where something like Python can add a lot of flexibility to what you're trying to do. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I, I, I think for me, I, I often recommend Python, but 
that's because I, many years ago, have Python knowledge, or I should say programming knowledge. So I think if you've got a programmer's mindset, Python is, is so much better. But I like what you said, you know, the, 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 the analogy of the cars is brilliant. So use the tool that's best for you and what you enjoy the most. But I think what you also said there that's great is that you, you're not restricting yourself to one tool. Like, so they use Python plus Ansible. And I mean, there's nothing stopping you jumping from one to the other if you need to. So Eric, I mean, the thing we were talking about it is, is this real? Um, so I mean, we've spoken a few times about, you know, you really believe network automation programmability is real. I mean, you've been doing it for 20 odd years. Um, so it's not some big hype, because there seems to be a lot of hype at the moment. So have you, have you honestly, like, not you, because you're like an exception perhaps to the rule, but have you seen guys in the real world who have taken something that perhaps you've taught them in a, in a workshop or something, and it's been implemented? I mean, can you stand or sit here and say, this is real, this is not like some like open flow perhaps, you know, pie in the sky stuff? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I mentioned earlier, I've done a lot of these workshops with customers and a lot of my workshop formats were actually like workshop, workshop slash hackathon. And what I would try and do is that we'd spend, uh, usually if I was doing that, I'd do a tool like Ansible, like I mentioned, because yeah. it was very easy to get people off the ground. So I might spend the first two thirds of a day covering a lot of the basics with Ansible. So we can kind of talk about what it is, how the various modules work for iOS XE and XOS, some of the other platforms that we had at our disposal and that the customers used. But then we would spend the rest of that day, we'd do some of that brainstorming I talked about in a session that you know we usually called something like Art of the Possible, where we just talked about you know what are your pain points, uh, what are things that you would like to cut out of your day-to-day -day job, but that still need doing. So we'd get all that on the board, and we would actually uh, then have everyone go up and vote after we had a good list, and they'd select which were the most important for them. Uh, and then based on that, we'd sit down and we'd divide into four groups and say, okay, maybe pick the top four in four corners of the room, everyone pick which one's most important to them. And we would spend the rest of that evening as late as they wanted to stay. And then the next day, the first half of the day, they would actually build code to take on some part of that. Now they're not gonna write something like the WebEx one I mentioned, the full, but they started with that, let's grab a show tech. Let's go down and download a version of code from iOS and push it out to the file system and have it ready for upgrade on an upgrade script. Uh, and I had countless workshops that I did where they actually were able to do that. And then the, uh, the last task of the day is they have to actually each present back to the rest of the team what they had. Uh, and some teams would come back with just some workflows. They'd show us what they might be able to do. But al almost every workshop, at least one or two teams had deliverable, uh, executable code that would do some portion of the task that they were trying to do. So if it was, I had one team that was trying to do VPNs and they actually wrote a set of templates that they could use for a normal site-to-site -site VPN that they do dozens of every month and it would then be able to substitute in variables and they could run a playbook against it and generate the config that they could manually review and apply and then save a copy of so they had a historical uh, record. Or another one did, like I mentioned, pre-download some code onto devices so they could go evaluate the status of a device. If it was an older version, they could write mem, they could put a new version of code on that they wanted it to upgrade to 
uh, and then have it sit there and wait until they were ready to do an upgrade on it. So these are all things that at the end of a two-day hackathon workshop, they were actually able to generate code to do that. And, and, and you know, like I said, I, I often followed up and sometimes they had done more with it. Sometimes they kind of let it sit where it was at. But they had the tools then to at least do it and see, yes, I can see where this could actually do something for me. Uh, and the ones that kept going were the ones that said, yes, this is actually making a change. It's less work for me. And especially at scale, I can see where this, there's value in this. So, I mean, you deal with a lot of customers. And I mean, you don't have to mention names and stuff, but there's a lot of people that are moving to this. I mean, you've been doing it for, for a long time, but not everyone has. A lot of people, I mean, it feels like a lot of guys have actually done this, but it might have been Perl strips or like, whatever, just some kind of script, uh, Excel macros even, and now we've got all this hype about network automation. But I mean, customers are doing this more and more now and reaping the benefits, is that right? Uh, yeah, and it, I'd say there's a, a pretty big gamut of what they're doing, how they're doing it, who's doing it. Um, the customers that I covered, which were a lot of the larger customers uh, for Cisco, were were across the the gamut. So we had some that had full-on teams that they built out, and they had uh, developers, they had network folks in them. Uh, they were focused solely on automating things. And actually, that brings up an interesting point and kind of a tangent. But um, for anyone that is looking at doing this, if you have a, an organization where that kind of a team makes sense. I've seen a lot of people try it, and the most success I've seen is where you don't just hire a bunch of programmers and put them on a group. You don't just hire a bunch of networking guys and put them in the group alone and tell them learn how to code. It's where you actually get some of each because uh, the networking guys like you and I that have been doing this uh, a really long time, longer than I care to admit, um, there's, there's this expertise. And the CCI level, level people, we know things about how to troubleshoot networks, what to look for, how to tweak really esoteric configuration things. We have this level of expertise that if you just tell a programmer to go and configure BGP across a bunch of stuff, they could write the code, but they won't understand what they're doing. Um, so I've had customers that tried to do that and they would kind of describe to the developers what to do and they'd get something back and it's exactly what they described, but not at all what they wanted. <laughs> um, and I had one customer in particular that after a while of doing that, they realized this isn't working. They put the two teams together. They brought some of the networking folks onto the same team. They sat side by side and they were able to do really impactful work because the networking folks could say, as an engineer, here's what I needed. I needed a dashboard that looked like this. I needed to access this information in this format. And they learned enough coding so that they could actually describe what they wanted in the right language. And then the programmers could could review the code that the engineers made and say, make recommendations on that. So together they really learned each other's side of things very well, and it worked really well. Um, but so then to come back off of that tangent. Um, I'm glad uh, you mentioned that, <laughs> it's a great thing to say, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, Aside from that tangent, I had customers that were kind of on that end of the spectrum that were building out full teams. Admittedly, you have to have a decent sized organization to do that. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, I see a range of different possibilities. So a lot of people are at least investigating it. A lot of my customers say they want that skill set in their engineers uh, and they're trying to find ways to develop it. Um, a lot of other ones say we don't want to have to write code. We don't want to have to support it. We don't want the whole problem of one guy wrote everything, all of our automation and then got hit by a bus. Uh, we, we want we want to be able to understand it, but we don't necessarily want to build our own. So that's where things like partners can come in, where you can find uh, companies that have that skill set, but you still want to develop the baseline skills inside of your team so that 
you can understand what they're doing. You can, again, ask those intelligent questions, describe it in a meaningful way what you want them to accomplish. And then when they're done building it for you, hopefully you can keep it up and running unless you need major changes. So I think the skill set is very useful and I see customers kind of fitting into different slots where they might want to build it all themselves, they might want to hire someone to build it and just support it, they might want to hire someone to build it and support it. Um, it all kind of comes down to sizing, what their appetite is for you know, increasing staff versus increasing uh, spend with people that, uh, that they'd have to pay to support things like that. Uh, but I haven't had many customers that haven't expressed some sort of an interest in needing to do this, at least in the larger customers. Now, just like all things, you know, this stuff is second nature to the web scales for 20 years now, probably 15 years. Uh, it works its way down. So as you get into smaller, smaller customers, you know, if you only have two or three of you at a shop, that doesn't mean you need it less. You might see less time to invest to do it. And that's where that skill set actually becomes really important. So uh, in large organizations, I would say it's pretty safe to assume that almost no large organization uh, would rank someone highly on a candidate uh, list if they don't have any automation skills, any programming whatsoever. They may not have to know much, but if you've never touched Python, if you've never looked at a line of code, uh, it probably will negatively impact your perception with them uh, if you're going for a position. I see that moving down very quickly to where smaller companies are saying, I want to do more with less. I, I don't have the staff to bring on a lot more network engineers, but with all these IoT devices and all of these new technologies that we're doing, you know, we're doing lots of VPNs now, whatever it may be that you're scaling up, you need to be able to get people on board that can think creatively and, and find creative solutions like automating the complex or repetitive tasks. Or it could just be as simple as, my team doesn't have enough time to, to maintain. We, we have a lot of old gear and we don't have the time to replace it. Automation can go out and help you figure out what needs replacing, what's past support, what's, what's got bugs that could be manipulated. You know, all of these things help small teams actually do the work that it would be great if they could do, but they don't necessarily have the time to do themselves. So I do see like all of those types of organizations doing it. I don't think it's a only very large organizations anymore. Um, it's just a matter of how far along that curve some are, and many are just starting. So it's it's not that people are behind. I see a lot of my customers, we're just starting to say, what do we do? What should we do? How do we do it? And that's again where that kind of start with a whiteboard. Just start clean slate, what is a pain point for me? And then let's figure out if we can solve it. I'm, I'm glad you said that because I think this brings us to the next topic is, okay, so you saying that Customers are demanding these skills more and more. So uh, we, we spoke about this earlier, and we won't mention names. I, as an example, taught uh, Cisco Call Manager many, many years ago from version 3.0, and I clearly remember teaching PBX guys, Cisco Call Manager, and they were, f they were physically wanting to hit me because their jobs were on the line. And, I mean, we spoke about this. We've both seen this where guys like PBX engineers if they didn't transition to the new world, they basically fell behind. So do you believe that's going to happen with network engineers, or is that also just a story? Do you, do you think that if network engineers don't adapt, they're going to be left behind? Yeah, I, th I think it's a very real possibility. If I had a crystal ball and could say for certain, then I probably would be doing a lot better in my uh, in my financial state. But um, but yeah, so I, I went through that exact same transition. So I worked uh, you know at an organization where there were lots of folks that had that skill set, the kind of classic PBX punch down uh, skill set. And as things started shifting to IP, uh, a lot of them. Uh, 
didn't really want to, they didn't see either the reason for the move, they didn't understand why they should have to, and they thought things were working fine as is. And a lot of those folks never made the shift, so uh, they ultimately ended up uh, having lesser and lesser opportunities in the industry. On the flip side... Yeah, oh, there's yeah. your beer, man. Oh, yeah. Sorry, we're getting to interrupt yeah. for a beer. Yeah, okay, that's, no, that's well worth it. So, um, Eric and I were talking earlier about this conversation is going to go a lot better with beer. So, Eric, hopefully it goes better now. Well, it's going great, but I mean, hopefully it's, it's going to go even better. So, sorry, carry on. <laughs> sure, thanks. Cheers, everyone. Um, yeah, so I, I saw a lot of those folks would struggle with, um, you know, they didn't necessarily see the reason, so they didn't move ahead, and they, they found less and less career opportunities in the future. On the flip side, the folks that I knew that were really in deep in IP tele or in, in classic telephony call centers, those became some of the sharpest engineers I knew in the IP space because they brought 20 years of experience uh, writing call flows in a call center into this new technology space, and they could use all of that skill just using a different tool to accomplish it. Uh, I think that ex I don't see any way that exact same shift doesn't happen here because anything that I could do, you know, as a CCIE, I can do better if I inform the machine how to do it, and I can I, it can scale to levels that I could never consider, which is exactly the same as what IP telephony did. You can't punch down thousands of phones in a minute, but I can I can do that in a, in a IP PBX. I can connect thousands in a second or in a minute. Same thing with automation. I could configure a bunch of routers but I can configure thousands of routers with automation using my knowledge of how I want them configured, how I want settings tuned, how I want all of this to happen. So it really is an important skill set and it doesn't diminish the need for people with a lot of the networking skills. On the contrary, I think it actually allows you to bring out those skills and actually use them to depths that you haven't imagined before. And it allows you to step back a little bit and say, okay, now I've got something doing all the busy work. I can focus on, like, what should I maybe do to refine my topologies, to enhance my failure domains? What can I do to actually transform the way I'm doing this in a much better way, rather than worrying about how am I going to set the MTU on a thousand interfaces in my 20-minute outage window? Like, I shouldn't be bothered with that kind of benign stuff, uh, especially at the higher levels of performance. Uh, architects, high-end engineers should be focusing on the more strategic things, and this, I think, unlocks that capability for them. That, that's great. I mean, I think what you said there, something that you said is really cool. You said that the best IP telephony engineers were actually the traditional guys that, that learned the new stuff because they had all that knowledge. And I think, so this is like, this question is based on that in the background. So some network guys think they'll have to become programmers. That's not necessarily true, is it? Because they could become really good network automation engineers. Well, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, that's actually a slide I have in one of my uh, decks that I use with most of my customers uh, is, um, you know, but I got into this because I didn't want to go into programming. Yeah, exactly. uh, and that's literally what my career path was. I, I started doing networking because in university, all they would teach, they, they didn't have networking classes back then. They had programming. And that wasn't of interest, so I moved on to the networking field and just started doing more on-the-job training and got my CCIE instead. Um, so you're absolutely correct. That's spot on. You don't have to become a programmer. I would say if you're not willing to at least understand how programming works, understand how design works. So how, how can I think through a workflow and, and envision what I would want? Um, 
if you're not willing to do any of that, then you're going to have a tough time of it, I believe. Uh, but that doesn't mean you have to be the one doing the code. If you at least take a little bit of time to understand how programming flows work and, and dependencies and workflows and if-then things, it's really just, it's, it's actually not complex. It's what would you do as a human? All we're doing in, in automation is we're telling computers what we do as a human. So if I'm troubleshooting, well, I SSH to the device. If I can't connect, well, okay, I know that device has a problem. If I can connect, I log in. If I can't log in, there's a problem. If I can log in, I show interface. I, the, you, all you have to do is start capturing what your flow is, and then you could describe to someone else how to build it, and then you start augmenting. When they, when they do their first iteration, it may do X, Y, Z, and then you say, well, but I need another conditional. If you see this error message in the log, that actually means uh, X, Y, Z, so we should take another course of action. And actually, that brings up an interesting, this is another example that I use with a lot of customers, not something I've seen implemented outside of Cisco, but um, there's this concept of uh, automatic troubleshooting where uh, you can actually take something, and, and this existed, if any of you are familiar with the output interpreter uh, that we've had, uh, I'm not sure if it's I'm not sure if it's still available or not, but it was available over a decade ago. Um, but you could take an output and put it in, and behind the scenes, it crunched some numbers, it looked at what was there, and it could warn you, I see this, I see that, you should look into this. Well, what if organizations could do that at, a, at their own scale? So if you have something custom to your environment, if you see this route disappear from the routing table uh, or a log that says this error, you know that this condition occur is occurring and you want to take action. So you could actually set something like that up yourself where you have a master database and you just keep growing it. The first, initially, your first outage you have after you set this up, you, after you're done, you figure out what conditions could have been measured that led to that. You can then put it in to say, if these conditions are ever met, raise a flag saying this is about to happen. And when you get really good, you can tell it, okay, well, correct for it before it actually happens. But then the next outage you have, hopefully it's not the same kind of an outage because you've already accounted for it. Next time you, you have an outage, you look and see what it was and you capture what that would look like. And you start just building this internal knowledge base where the machine can actually do your diagnostic or help with your diagnostic and recommend. Last time I saw this error or nine times out of 10 when this error came through, uh, we had a route flap within 10 minutes. How valuable would that be to be able to anticipate what's about to happen? And it's, you know, it's kind of bordering on uh, machine learning or AI. It's not really, but you're teaching it how to think. You're teaching it exactly the workflow that your brain would go through um, using all of these decades of knowledge that you've stored up. But it can do it far faster. It can check thousands of conditions instead of one or two. I mean, I, again, I like it that you said that it's um, you're basically taking the brain of a CCIE, if, you, if you've got them on staff, and you're trying to just, rather than have that having having that in your head, trying to put that onto into into code, so it would kind of follow what you would do. And I mean, if you're not a CCIE, just try and replicate what, what you would do as a human kind of thing, is that right? Yep. And I mean, like the use cases that you've found most people implementing, is it's like troubleshooting, it's show commands, it's not necessarily trying to configure all the devices. That's like low-hanging fruit, yeah? Yeah, and to be clear, it's not that that's all they're doing. That's where they start. Yeah. So uh, most people, when you start the journey, absolutely go with the low-hanging fruit, the safe stuff to do. Um, most of my customers quickly progress past that. And so, like I mentioned, the baseline config or the gold config, uh, very quickly, you get once you've tested it out, that's easy to implement. 
if you're using a tool like Ansible, you just run it in check mode. Once you're comfortable that it's not going to do anything you don't anticipate, start running it. And you can run it every week, every month, whatever. Log the output so you have that accountability. Um, but yeah, customers very quickly actually progress. They realize that allows them to go to their leadership and say, look, we're automating. We've shown what would have happened. We wouldn't have done anything destructive. Let us do this for real. Because there is a lot of concern for management, and rightfully so, that there is risk associated with automating things at a large scale. So you can do things like that to prove, look, we, we're accounting for things, we're testing them, we're confident in it. And again, if you can take it that extra step, you can run it against test environments, whether it's viral, GNS, whatever you want to do for a, a virtual environment, you could actually even test some of your code against that if you're making changes that you're not sure what would happen. Um, so yeah, most I don't know many customers that only stay at that. Uh, they usually move on pretty quickly, but it's it's a matter of how long it takes them to get that buy-off that what they're doing is safe and is going to be successful. Yeah, I mean, that's great. So Eric, just to sum up, you've been doing this for many years, and in your experience, this stuff is real. It's not pie-in-the-sky stuff. It's actually happening. People are doing it. And you would recommend that anyone watching, if they're not already studying network automation, should start as quickly as they can because if they don't, they could be left behind. And if they do it, uh, they could enhance their careers. Does that sum it up? Yeah, I think that about covers it. I mean, it's it, if there's nothing else that you take away, it's that this stuff, it, it can be very intimidating, but it's not that hard. There are so many tools out there, so many resources, so many free courses you can do. Um, it's worth just taking the time, try it out a little bit, go out and find sample code. There's so much sample code out there available uh, to get my own plugin. DevNet actually has a curated list now of cool sample code anyone can add to and anyone can go and search. So if you go to developercisco.com slash code exchange, you can actually go and see several hundred repos that people have put together code that executes. So we try, we do our best to curate it and make sure it actually will work uh, without a lot of you know extra config necessary. But it's a great way, you know, you, you say, I want to learn Ansible, but I don't even know where to start. Go out there and search for Ansible, and you're going to find some sample playbooks that, you know, may configure a router, may do X, Y, Z, whatever it may be. But it's a great way to take it. Uh, the, the number one learning uh, lesson in programming is steal code. Yeah. So go out there, take someone's code, change it. If it's setting a user, maybe you want to try setting an NTP server instead. You know, take what they've done and try and figure out how it works. Try and break it in your lab. Um, but it's not... It shouldn't be difficult. It should. There's so many resources out there that we're trying to make sure it's easy to to start in on this, and then uh, and then grow yourself by just you know doing more and more complex tasks as you go through. That's brilliant. I mean, so just to sum up, Eric, really appreciate your time. Thanks for spending so much time with me talking about this stuff. And you know, it was really nice for me to talk to you, someone who's a realist, not like an idealist about this stuff, like. Grumpy network engineer, I wouldn't call you that because we've already had that discussion. But you know, like guys who've been doing this for a long time, you, you, you need to be careful. And I'm really glad to hear that, you know, you're recommending this even, you know, based on your experience and, you know, the problems that you've encountered over the years. So thanks very much. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for the time. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for joining us on today's podcast. Be sure to visit David's YouTube channel at David Bumble, where you can subscribe and watch all of his videos. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Catch you next time on the David Bumble Networking Podcast. All the best. Take care.